1: Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with your co-host, the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice, and his wife Jeannie. Michael and Jeannie share with you the wisdom of the ancient Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. They offer tools and support five days a week. They will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love. In Aramaic, Rachma, Michael is the author of so Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information on Michael and Jeannie, please visit www.whyagain.com. And now your co-host, the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. To the brightness within you and the truth that.
0: Happy Monday. Today is November 16th, 2015. I'm Michelle Pache, filling in for Dini, and I'm here today with Dr. Michael Rice and Dr. Timothy Hayes. We warmly welcome you to the show, and thank you for choosing to be with us. Our call-in number is 646-200-4169. Press 1, and that puts you in the queue to talk with our hosts. We encourage you to call in with comments and questions. So now... Let's welcome Michael in support of developing our inner process of Aramaic forgiveness.
2: Well, thank you, young lady. It's an honor and a blessing to be here. We are we've arrived in Florida at last, thank you God. And uh we're almost getting settled into our house. We got here and found out that there was a problem with the water system and the air conditioning. So we're not quite there yet, but uh, but we are here, and it's a beautiful, sunny day, blue skies, probably about 85 degrees here today, so it's a little on the warm side. And uh, we are here to uh, to engage in the the process of first-century Aramaic healing and first-century Aramaic forgiveness. And, of course, when we're talking about the Aramaic, we're talking about a technology and a way of understanding life that can only be understood through the Aramaic conceptual framework and way of understanding and thinking. So we're here to comprehend on deeper and deeper levels just exactly what that means, and in particular how to engage in the first century Aramaic tools, and again in particular the process of forgiveness. We live in a culture that tells us that forgiveness is about how I let you off the hook for what's happening in me. And so virtually everyone has been trained to believe that when they're in pain, when they're in upset, when they're in disturbance, that when they talk about somebody else, they're talking about the cause of their pain and their upset and their disturbance. Few people recall in the middle of their muddle that They've been through this particular form of pain long, long, long before they ever met the person who they're currently blaming. And if they never learn to forgive, never learn to remove that pain, they'll be experiencing that pain long, long after they leave that relationship if that's what they choose to do. So one of the first questions that comes to mind when thinking about this topic at this point is, Who was it that taught us that if we were in pain or turmoil, a good thing to do was to give up our human lives and talk about somebody else? Who taught us that process? And if you look around, virtually every conversation you'll see in the world, virtually every parent, every priest, every minister, every rabbi, every teacher, when they're in pain or turmoil, loses contact with their human lives. Now, when we talk about loses contact with human life, of course, you've got to, first of all, be able to define a human life. And our definition is a simple one. Hold a newborn child, and you know exactly what a human life is. As you hold that newborn, you recognize that human life is about this awesome, sweet, active presence of love. It's how we're all designed to live, It's the stuff we're made of. And the world teaches us, after it fills us with all sorts of hostility and fear from our genetics and from our environmental experience, that the thing to trust, the thing to believe, the thing to go with is your hostility and fear-based mind. We are looking with this work to convert people, not to a religion, but back to a love-based mind that in the presence of our muddle, in the presence of our pain, we can stay in contact with the truth of who we are. We can deal with our lives from the perspective of that state of love. Now, there is the old saying that when you're up to your butt in alligators, it's hard to remember that the objective was to drain the swamp. So it takes a great deal of practice to move in the direction of something is triggered by another in me and to refrain from conversations about them and step into conversations about myself, to actually own the output of my mind. And when I turn to a an hostility and fear-based mind, it's a good thing to recognize that that's what I trust. Now, I'll offer that... Our definition of human life comes from Jeannie opening the Why Is This Happening to Me Again workshop every time we do it with a question. How many have ever held a newborn? Describe your newborn. We get words like awesome, sweetness, purity, love, divine. We get every word we ever hear in describing a newborn is some variation on the theme of love. Then she asks a second question. How many have ever done something they regret? And what were you feeling when you did what you regretted? We never hear somebody say, I was in this awesome, pure, present state of love. We always hear words like rage and guilt and grief and fear. Always, 100% of the time, wherever we go on the planet, they're the words that people use to describe what they did when they regret when they did what they regretted. Now, what does that mean? That means that if we did what we regretted, we were pretty stupid at the moment. We were trusting a mind that was lying to us. And it's time for us to give up our lies and to give up the belief that my upset is caused by someone else. And so when I've had that conversation a million times, it can be a difficult conversation to let go of. So thinking that there's something wrong with somebody else, your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your spouse, your child, whatever, Thinking that's true, thinking that you're being upset by what they did is always a power person projection because you'll notice that what you're feeling is in your body. So the conversation we turn around to have about another is always the conversation that our power person pointed toward us. So if when the stress was up and the chips were down for our power person, they put us down and told us what was wrong with us and how we couldn't do it right, then what we'll do is we'll turn around and talk to somebody else, explain to them how they can't do it right, and it's their fault. In the meantime, we'll be the one that's in disturbance and pain. If you're in disturbance and pain, there's an energy in you that doesn't belong in you, and your mind is stupid. It is not being fueled by love. It is being fueled by hostility and fear. A mind in hostility or fear is stupid. It tells lies. And its lies are so convincing because its lies become pictures of the world that we see. And until we stop believing the world that we see, until we we stop living according to what the world that we see tells us, and the world we see is a reflection of the energy that we hold within us that's resonated by a situation, then we're going to keep playing that game out over and over and over. And you'll notice every time two people are in conflict, one of them can sit there and prove their case how it's all the other's fault, and the other can sit there and prove their case about how it's their partner's fault. And both of their cases sound flawless, especially to their own minds. But if there is hostility or fear in the conversation in any way, shape, or form, the mind is lying. And it's playing out pain resonated by some experience. Now, there are all kinds of experiences and conversations that we have in our heads that came from our experience with our power person, and we tend to turn around and put that on the person we're today in relationship with. So we have pain from an early experience, and most people's lives are run from before the age of three, I would offer. And so... The kinds of messages that came from the power person that we'll turn around and put on the person we're currently looking at will be things like, you know, you're going to abandon me, or the I'm not good enough message, or you're not good enough message, or the message of I'm being blamed, or you're being blamed, or the message of I won't survive. Messages like I'm going to be hurt, or I'm going to hurt you. Or power person messages that said things like, you deserve whatever you get. You'll never be good enough because you're bad. You'll never make it. You're ugly. I hate you. We actually had a woman in a, a Y workshop where we asked the question about the messages that were given by their power person. And this young lady said that she she just had total clarity in remembering being six years of age, and her father coming to her and telling her that until she was born into the family, they had a perfect family, and that she destroyed the family when she arrived. What kind of a message to give a child? So they can be messages like, you always ruin things. Or, here's a good hook from the far person, I'm the only one who will ever love you. That's a hellish message to give somebody. Or... No one will ever love you. So they're the kind of messages that we get buried in, and of course a thousand variations on that theme, and then we bury others. We use a language that replicates the dynamic of our power person to play that out with the person in front of us, hoping beyond hope that we won't get hurt again when the source of the hurt is within us. There's a great line in The Course of Miracles that says, what a petulant device, that which hurts you the most, that which you most don't want to deal with. You hide the only place you will ever get to deal with it, and that's inside yourself. And basically, that's what most people are doing. The reverse holds a solution. When I'm in pain or turmoil, and this can be a big ego challenge, Instead of talking about you, I stop and I talk about me. Not, well, when you did this and you said that and you did that and you meant this and you meant that and you did this and you did that, when I stop and say, well, you know, I had really a great deal of sadness or grief or rage or pain or fear or fear of abandonment, fear of loss, fear of attack, fear of being hurt, fear of being broke, fear, you know, if I can start to have those conversations, then I'm going to change the dynamic of the power person, and instead of suddenly turning it around into a conversation about them, you'll notice if you sit down with Mrs. Jones, and she's just had a conflict with Mr. Jones, Mrs. Jones is going to tell you a whole story about Mr. Jones. And if you take Mr. Jones into a separate room, and he's in his pain, he's going to have a whole conversation about Mrs. Jones. Neither of them are likely to say a word about themselves because they've been trained in power-person dynamics, denial, and projection. Denial happens when I think or speak as though something outside of me is the cause of something inside of me, and it is a huge piece of learning to get free of that. In the meantime, what most people do is they drug themselves. The most common drug on the planet is busyness. The granddaddy of all drugs I would offer is hostility. And notice the hostility that gets pointed at someone else and the hostility that comes from within is drugging me against something inside of me that I don't want to feel, that I don't want to deal with. And then people move into all sorts of other drugs. You know, stuff, money, power, possessions, alcohol, every kind of drug you can imagine. All of this becomes a way to anesthetize oneself against their pain and the whole world has become so addicted that we've turned into insane loveless people I put a post on my Facebook page last night and it was a a repeat of some of the last words that Steve, Steve Jobs had to say before he passed, and it's so powerful and so revealing when you hear someone who's considered by the world to be the epitome of success. Steve Jobs had it all, so they say. Let's hear what Steve says about that. I reached the pinnacle of success in the business world. In others' eyes, my life is the epitome of success. However, aside from work, I have little joy. In the end, wealth is the only fact of life I am accustomed to. At this moment, lying on the sickbed and recalling my whole life, I realize that all the recognition and wealth that I took so much pride in have paled and become meaningless in the face of impending death. In the darkness, I look at the green lights from the life-supporting machines and hear the humming mechanical sounds. I can feel the breath of the God of death drawing closer. And give me a second here. It just kind of disappeared on me. Then he goes on to say, now I know when we have accumulated sufficient wealth to to last our lifetime, we should pursue other matters that are unrelated to wealth. Of course, notice, he still, even though wealth he recognizes is the only thing he's got, he says, well, we get that first, then we're going to pursue others. The only piece of this whole statement that he makes that I certainly don't agree with, go pursue what's important before you ever start looking for the wealth. Should that so, our pursuit should be something that is more important. Perhaps relationships, perhaps art, perhaps a dream from younger days. Non-stop pursuing of wealth will only turn a person into a twisted being, just like me. God gave us the senses to let us feel the love in everyone's heart, not the illusions brought about by wealth. The wealth I have won in my lifetime. I cannot bring with me. What I can bring is only memories precipitated by love. That's the true riches which will follow you, accompany you, giving you strength and the light to go on. Love can travel a thousand miles. Life has no limit. Go where you want to go. Reach the height you want to reach. It is all in your heart and in your hands. What is the most expensive bed in the world? Sick bed. You can employ someone to drive the car for you, make money for you, but you cannot have someone else bear the sickness for you. Material things lost can be found, but there is one thing that can never be found when it is lost. Life. When a person goes to the operating room, he will realize that there is one book that he has yet to finish reading. The book, of a healthy life whichever stage in life you are at right now with time we will face the day when the curtain comes down of course that's a belief treasure the love for your family love for your spouse love for your friends treat yourself well and cherish others pretty powerful insight for a man on his deathbed Who are we really? What's really valuable? What's really worthwhile? Do we trust in our drugs and our hostility and fear more than we do the truth of who we actually are? I'd offer that one that trusts in wealth, that's exactly the place that they are. And it has so entrapped the world that my offering is that human life has almost disappeared. That that true presence of love, well, we see it come out oftentimes in moments of other stress. But when we're under stress, is that what we trust? And if that's what we trust, then we've got it made. We're on it. And A part of the process of living as love, as living as human beings, is a willingness to see the truth. If I live in the lie of you're the cause of my pain, I live in blockage of truth. When I live in blockage of truth, I cannot live my life as a human being. It's just not possible. There's an awesome new film out, which Jeannie and I went to see last night, if you haven't seen it. I invite you to go see it with these eyes. Are you there, Michael? Are you there, Michelle? I am here. Did I did I get lost there, Tim?
0: For a moment. You said
3: you said I would invite you to go see this new film
2: with these eyes. That was the last word we heard. Okay. Uh, when I uh, hit hit the button on my phone, I must have hit the mute button. So I'm I'm back. Excuse me. Thank you for jumping in there. So the film is Bridge of Spies, and for me, the 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 reality, the picture that I got out of it was pretty incredible to watch it as a demonstration for the difference between human life and non-human life. Being, the presence of love that we are, which includes love of truth, and those who have no love in them, especially when the stress is up and the chips are down. In essence, what it showed was The World of the Walking Dead. And in that movie, there were two people who had the integrity to love truth enough, to love truth more than their own desires, their opinions based on the way they'd been brainwashed, and their stunted goals. The rest of the world, with no love of truth, it demonstrated very poignantly that virtually everyone would turn their hatred or their affections toward events based on their own goals with no regard whatsoever for truth. There are several instances where this gentleman who's an attorney and loves truth enough to go for the truth rather than the goals of the society. Basically, it's a story of an attorney who is asked to defend a uh, Russian spy, and it's based on a true story. And this man is a man of integrity and truth, and so when he chooses to take on the job of defending this Russian spy, he in fact defends him, much to the chagrin of the Justice Department that asked him to do so, so it looked like they were going to give him a fair trial. Much to the chagrin of the judge who's like, are you kidding me? You're actually going to defend this guy? This is supposed to be a sham, don't you know? We all know the guy's guilty. We all know we're going to put him to death. And, you know, as his picture gets published in the paper, the stares of hatred he gets because he's simply bringing truth forward to this man who's a Russian spy who is another man of integrity, the only two people in the film who are people of integrity. And he stands in his truth, and he tells the truth. Yes, I am a spy, yes, and no, I am not going to cooperate, and yes, if you put me to death, that will be okay. It was was kind of a cool line several time, times. Um, the, the attorney says to him, well, aren't you worried about that? And the guy says, well, will that help? <laughs> well, will that help? No, he refused to go to worry. But you just watch how, throughout this film, everyone based on the goals they hold are either in hatred or in admiration of this attorney. Attorney. When things turn around, all of a sudden everybody admires him and looks at him with eyes of love, but when he's actually pursuing truth and doing the task he was assigned to do, people disdain and hate him. So in, in the film it demonstrates very clearly that there are two men who can stand with their heads held high as actual humans, And my offering is that they're they're able to do that because they love truth enough that they live as human beings. The judge, the government agents, the attorneys, Mary and Joe Average, hate or love, quote-unquote, hate or approval are their only two states and nothing whatsoever to do with the truth, all based on whether or not their infantile goals were met. These two men have the courage to face popular opinion and carried forward, you know, not swayed by the popular insanity of the day. It's a powerful demonstration of the stress that's aroused when actual truth shows up and everyone without a human life just wants to have their selfish, self-centered, infantile goals fulfilled and are willing to kill, go to war, or sacrifice others for the satisfaction of those goals. No interest in, no relationship with truth. It's a powerful visual and experience of what someone who's actually going to keep going for truth will face as others' goals are frustrated by their search for truth. And the stress that comes up in those goals for those who have no interest in truth. It's it's just a a powerful bird's eye view of the the power of the presence of love and the search for truth. And ties right in because whenever one is in stress and they hold hostility or fear within and want to talk about someone else, they're doing exactly that. They are lying to themselves, no interest in truth, and telling a story about how it's all somebody else's fault. And what we're looking to do to this work is to bring forward the awareness of the power of loving the truth more than your own opinion, more than your own stuff, telling yourself the truth, building a perceptual world based in truth, and functioning out of that, and the gift and the power that has in the world. Powerful opportunity, powerful process. And, you know, this attorney in particular, when he chooses to take this, uh, this position to defend this man, which he really doesn't want to do, but the government's saying it's your patriotic duty to do this, we have to show that we're going to at least put up the sham of a defense. And then he puts up an actual defense. And then... When he gives reason, of course, the judge has already got the foregone conclusion that this spy is going to be executed. He comes forward with a rationale to the judge that says, well, you know, we've got one of theirs, and we could execute him, and it would be over, and everybody would feel satisfied and elated over that. But what happens if they get one of ours, and we need a bargaining chip? If we kill him, then they're going to kill ours. And as it turns around, and when I mention this scenario, everyone, oh, probably over the age of 55 will, will recall, maybe a little more than that, is Gary Powers, his U-2 spy-, spy plane that was shot down over Russia. All the lies that were told, all the frauds that were told. But then he is in a prison cell captured by the Russians. And the government ends up asking this attorney to go to Russia as an individual, not as a representative of the government, because the government can't do this negotiation and negotiate an exchange for Gary powers and this Russian spy. So all of a sudden the fact that he brought the spy through and didn't get a death sentence. Now he's the hero because he trades him for Gary powers and Everybody looks at him with these eyes of love. No interested in truth whatsoever, just having their infantile goals fulfilled. And then the man has integrity. There's another young student who at the same time was captured because he was trying to help his uh, history or whatever professor get out of East Germany. This was just as the Berlin Wall was going up. And they've captured this kid and pretty much tortured him. They know he's not a spy, but they've got him anyway. And so he ends up, the government has no interest in this kid. Let him burn. We don't care. We want powers back because powers got state secrets. And if he gets, if they break him, then we're in trouble. So all they're interested in is covering their own butts and they're willing to just let this young boy fry. And once again, this man to the chagrin of officialdom, the insane controllers of the game, this attorney says, I will not negotiate for for uh, powers alone. They have offered him, and I said, no, if you're not going to give us this this college kid, then no deal. And the, the, the government agents just go nuts on him, like, yeah, we just, we want powers, we don't care about, and he's like, excuse me, I'm the negotiator, here's the truth, this young man's life is as valuable as Gary Powers, and we're going to get him back. And if you don't like it, You go negotiate yourself. Powerful, powerful portrayal of someone who stands in the truth. It's interesting that the Russian gentleman comes up with a phrase, and I forget exactly what the phrase is, but as he's willing to go to his death over the fact that he was a spy and admitted it, he gives a Russian phrase, and the the Russian phrase basically means standing in truth, a man standing in truth. I don't don't remember the exact words that were used, but in essence, that was it. And he's standing on the bridge ready for the exchange with Gary Powers, and they're doing this this student at a different location. And the student hasn't been um, released yet, and it looks like they're not going to release him. And so the attorney says to this man that he defended, well, you can go in the government agent who doesn't care about this student Tells him, go, go, you're free, we've got our exchange, get out of here. And the man looks at the attorney and says, they're not going to let the kid go? And he uses that phrase, and he stands. Though it may mean he'll go back to prison for life. He stands for that kid being freed from German-Russian control. Very powerful in the stand for truth and what it can cost. So I invite everybody to go see it, and it's just it gives a beautiful bird's eye of the power of living a human life. And, and literally two men in that whole scenario live in truth, and therefore as humans, the rest just watch how when their goals are frustrated, they're ready to kill. When their goals are satisfied, they're in joy and delight, totally controlled by the environment. No relationship whatsoever to the beings that they are. They've lost it. And it's it's such a common brainwash that it's it's a powerful view of what it takes to stand in the truth and step forward truly as a human being. So I invite you to go see it. And, uh, you know, th- this movie may be second in importance only to Inside Out because of the, how powerfully it portrays human life. And it would be cool to have people who, who get to go see it over the next uh, few days or whatever, to uh, to share with us uh, your perspectives and your view of the film, or if there's anybody that's seen it, uh, to share your thoughts. Dr. Tim, have you by any chance seen Bridge of Spies yet? And do you have any thoughts on what uh, we've said said so far and uh, and or anything exciting happening in your world?
3: Well, I have not seen Bridge of Spies. I intend to see it. And um, you're... Intro in this conversation sparked me to think of um we had a discussion on Saturday I had the pleasure of being able to have dinner with my family <clears throat> and my youngest is moving out of state so it was a, a get together and a send off and a whole weekend of intense family times and meetings and my I hope 27 for year wonderful old purposes. and and my 27 year old had been listening a lot to the news about Paris and right. the uh, terrorist attacks there. And so he was just about as revved up as he could be and spouting all of this fear and, the, you know, what he'd been sucking up, what every media outlet would offer him. And so one of the things that had happened earlier um on Saturday was that National Public Radio had a or maybe this was on Friday where they were talking about people were interviewed and asked a series of questions about science and science fiction and the future and and there was an open-ended question at the end of the survey and it said what scientific advance that's either fantasy or you know that you. Which one would you want? And out of thousands of people that answered this, about ten percent of them, hundreds of people, supplied their own open end response, and it was they wanted time travel. If they could have any scientific advance, they'd want. And an incredibly large percentage of those, when asked what would you do with time travel, they said pretty much the same thing they would go back and shoot hitler or shoot hitler's mother kill the baby or kill the young student or kill the mother of hitler and so my son was having this upset and rant on saturday and i said look you you have to understand how we are so trained and conditioned in this culture by our media and by our movies and television to think that the violence is the answer Isn't it amazing that nobody says, I would use my time machine to go back and raise Hitler in a loving family fashion, that I would soothe or comfort his parents or teach them parenting skills so that he would be raised as a loving, productive human being that he began as? And over and over and over again, We've been programmed to believe there's good, there's bad, good has to win over bad, and the solution is violence. But it ignores things like what Gandhi did, without any violence, to free a nation. What Mandela did, without any violence, with love. Both of these people focused on love and the power of that. It isn't as simple and quick and and down and dirty as blowing something up or shooting somebody. But it's so much more effective, and it breaks the cycle of violence. And yet, here we are with you know a history that's replete with examples of the power of love to transform nations and lives, and yet that's not the solution that comes to mind because we've been so programmed with the violent solution.
2: So, I think the other piece of that puzzle, Tim is that there's no money in the loving solution. You know, the reason, my take is the reason the brainwash is so powerful for, for violence is because, you know, if you're going to go bomb somebody, somebody just made $400,000. If you're going to fly an airplane and, and drop bombs, somebody just made $25 million. If you're going to do a, you know, a, a new supersonic uh, superjet, somebody just made $100 million. and And that's what, funds the insanity that's put forward the conditioning that you're talking about and and certainly it's um uh, it's a uh, a different game to keep bringing forward to people the solution that if we live as human beings we're going to resolve the world's problems not much money in it agreed well, I hope that your son's reason for going out of state are wonderful ones. Is he got a new job or he is exploring a warmer climb
3: oh okay. i a... I, understand.
2: I understand that one. I'm in Florida
3: well, and you were you were here with us when that son t- went off on a bike ride out west, and on that trip, he discovered that he really liked Denver and he came back and worked for another year and a half and then moved to Denver for nine months, but he didn't have any friend base any family base to ground him in denver so it only lasted nine months but now he's going down to phoenix and he has a friend that he's going to be living with and working at relocating because he's he's the kind of person who really doesn't do well in the very short days cloudy days very short amount of light and so he's off on an adventure
2: well, that's awesome. I, I, You know, the way he reaches out, he's got so much courage. I really admire him and hold the space that he has an awesome journey out there.
3: Thank you. I'm sure he appreciates it.
2: Yeah, cool. Cool. So well, that's Michelle? my offering for today. Cool. Thank you, sir. Michelle, thank you for being there. And I wonder if we've any, got anybody with a hand up uh in the phone queue or anything happening in the chat room to be aware of and thanks for taking care of it we're uh we're just moving into our uh the house that we've uh set up for the next 7 months and we won't have internet or at least we hope we'll have internet tomorrow morning so we'll be able to get online to be able to do the show uh we we got here and uh found out that the water system was not working they're still working on that we still have no water in the house and uh the uh air conditioning isn't working yet so a few challenges yet to meet, but we're moving through them, and uh, actually, just as the show started, was just finishing off installing a mailbox and uh, getting, getting set up to be settled here until uh, next uh, June or July. So, Michelle, anything exciting happening that we should be aware of?
0: Um, the chat room's quiet, although there are several people there, and I put a synopsis of the film for people um, when you were describing it. Um, plenty of people listening, but no one with their hand up right now.
2: Okay. Well, we'll just put out the invitation. If you're on one of those stations where we can't see you in our control panel, our uh, call-in number is 646-200-4169. And uh, we'll put out a request with our journey. I don't know if anybody's been following our journey on Facebook or the last week or so where Michelle and Tim so kindly kicked in that uh, that happened a couple of times because we ran into problems with our van. The, the lights on our trailer went out, and that cost us a day, and uh, we ended up having to stay somewhere we were planning overnight. And then when we got to Memphis, the, uh, the trailer was... So so weighty on the back of the car, we had to get airbags put in. So we've run into a lot of uh, unforeseen, unpredicted circumstances, and and just you know by chance. And I I, I don't bring this up very often because uh, as I was talking to Jeannie about it this morning, I said, well you know that's what preachers do. It's like yeah, that's one of the reasons why I don't do it because preachers are usually always asking for money and it's all about money. And uh, for us, it's all about getting the tools into people's hands. But if there's anybody that's out there that has had your life impacted by this work, and uh, and you want to offer support, uh, this would be a good time to do it. We've, we've run into quite a bit of extra expense that wasn't anticipated for this journey, and uh just a little help would be nice. And if you would like to do that, you can go to our website, which is whyagain.org, and there's a donate button there, and you could put in a you know any amount you'd like. And or if you wanted to do a recurring monthly donation, that would be awesome, too. If this work is really supporting you and changing your life, I invite you to consider that uh, that you offer some support back. And uh, and we're delighted to be offering it with no input whatsoever. Our uh, our purpose in the world is to take these tools to every mind, heart, and being on the planet. And for those who may not be familiar with it, Jeannie and I normally travel six to ten months of the year. Last year, I think our synopsis was about 13,000 miles, 30 cities, and 180 workshops. And we do those workshops free, but we don't do them free because we're independently wealthy or have some big corporate sponsor. We don't. It's just us. And while we do them free, uh, you know, it's pretty difficult to do them for nothing. So we do invite people to support what we're doing. And if uh, if that's something that you've been thinking about, then we invite you. This would be a good time to uh, to do that. And also, we did have to, you know, we've got a, an intenser set up for February, And if you were thinking about uh, joining us for uh, either of the two intensives, we're doing a nine-day codependence to interdependence uh, starting on February 1st. And then that nine-day will turn into a 16-day, so people can do anything from nine to 16 days of that intensive, and then we'll take one day off and go into a 16-day laws of living. And if you're thinking about doing that, It would be wonderful if you'd confirm that you're planning to do that by making a deposit. Uh, We did have to uh, go ahead and uh, pay for the house. We've rented an absolutely beautiful, not the place we're staying in to do our writing. It's kind of uh, out in the boonies, uh, on eight and a half acres of land, an old, old, old Florida house. So we're fixing it up a little bit. But uh, but for the intensive, we'll be just oh, five minutes from Disney World in this really beautifully decorated upscale 3,500-square-foot home, seven-bedroom home where we're doing the intensive. And so if, you, uh, if you're thinking that you might be ready to take your work to the next level and you want to join us either for the nine-day codependence communication practicum, or the uh, 16-day codependence communication, or the 16-day laws of living. It would be nice if you'd go ahead and and put the word in now and and make a deposit on it so that uh, we can take care of that expense, which was one that uh, just kind of popped in that we had to go ahead and take care of uh, in order to to solidify that we'd have the home for February. So I just put that out, and uh, anyone who's inclined, please do that, and beyond that, if you've got a question on anything that I talked about in the introduction or anything that Dr. Kim had to say, we'd be honored if you'd push one if you're in the phone queue. Or if you're not in the phone queue yet, call 646-200-4169 and ask your question. Michelle, anything exciting happening there? Anybody with a hand up?
0: Actually, Michael, no. No hands up and no questions in the chat room. Um, I... Actually, was was um, thinking about a, a question I proposed for you when Tim was uh, talking about his son and his relationship to the world events. And I avoid TV. We have one at home, but I don't watch news or look for newspapers. Um, sometimes AOL, when you're opening email, you know, we'll have current events. And I guess that's how I... Generally, get my news. If I'm going in to pay for gas and I look down and there's a, you know, um, USA Today and it says something about the Dow Jones going down, you know, I become aware of it. And my belief is related to, um, you know, the, the impact I can have energetically on any tragedy in the world is continuing to clean house at home. And so, along those lines, it got me to thinking about. Because again, this is such a big event. It did come into my awareness outside of media um, channels that there was um deaths and uh, terrorist uh, talk et cetera, et cetera. So I started thinking about um, you know, do I continue to focus on you know creating peace in my life, creating peace with my relationships and my husband and my family and my clients. Or do I, you know, look into what's going on and then maybe send direct prayers and energy to, you know, those affected kind of thing. It's like, do do I fuel it by knowing about it or am I putting my head in the sand and really playing some kind of denial game? So I just was kind of thinking about maybe discussing a practical approach given some of these um, world events and and how do you use the tools?
2: Well, my offering would be that We can't take action on what we don't know about. Now, I think to steep oneself in the drama and trauma of the culture is a big mistake. But to be aware of what's going on and to be able to hold a space or take action where you have the ability to take action. You know, for instance, Dr. Tim spoke about action he took with his son. And so, They're the kinds of differences we can make by having awareness of those things. I think hiding our heads in the sand, pretending all is well when it's not, is as big a mistake as becoming so lost in it that we empower it. If there's something that we don't want to look at, to me, the first order of business is I need to work on what is it in me that – I don't want to look at. What's the pain in me that I can forgive? And as I do that, and for those who might be new to the show, the word forgive means remove. It doesn't mean let somebody else off the hook. So if I find myself in pain, I can apply actively the tool of first century Aramaic forgiveness, and I can become a factor in changing that insanity in the world by holding a different space for You know, the physicists tell us that every molecule in the universe is in continuous communication with every other molecule in the universe. If we're in continuous communication, and I'm commuting rage, communicating rage and fear about what you or somebody else just did, then I'm contributing energy to what you just did. If I see that I have rage and fear and I forgive as to my rage and fear, remove my rage and fear, then I'm contributing a different energy to you. Even if you're someone I'll never meet and never know, energetically there is a communication. And so the person who hides their head in the sand because they have so much terror inside themselves is a contributor to the insanity, an active contributor. When I choose to do differently, then I'm an active contributor that contributes something else. So that would be my take. Does that fit with your question? Does that give you some insight?
0: No, absolutely. And as you're talking, of course, it makes sense. And then I realize, well, that's why, um, you know, you had some misgivings about it, Michelle. Like that's probably why it was kind of bugging you. way do you go here because I, um, what you're saying about, Putting your head in the sand
2: does make sense. Dr. Tim, do you have any thoughts on that question?
3: Well, the only thing is to say ditto. To come back to the basics is if I'm not standing in a space of love and the only area on, on existence on the planet that I have absolute control over is What am I going to choose to focus my mind energy on? What am I going to choose to focus my creative energy on? That little bit of the whole that I have that infinite capacity to choose about. And I think where so many of us miss the point is that we're conditioned to believe we're supposed to be controlling outside events and other people's minds and actions. And I really I have the capacity to choose the focus of my conscious awareness in every moment. And it's an infinite capacity, and it's infinitely stronger than the outside events and influences and ripple effects of the connectedness. And that's how someone like Nelson Mandela can spend 27 years in prison and choose, despite the fact that they keep putting the most abusive guards in charge of him, that he refuses to let his mind go into anger and vengeance and bitterness and hatred for very long he keeps coming back to love. And so that's a very powerful creative act. It's a very powerful ripple effect that can be set up and it's the only one I have any control over. So
2: that's that would be what I would add. Yeah, actually, you bring up a good point there, Tim, of uh, another place where one can, and one of the new features in the book that I'm, and why is this happening to me, again, will be movie tips where people can, you know, there's a principle we're talking about. Here's a movie that illustrates it, and, you know, the illustration in the movie, if you haven't seen the movie Mandela, folks, pick that one up and watch it. It's very powerful. You know, he comes out of prison, he's been abused for decades, and and he comes out and, the people who haven't suffered as much as he has, who've not been imprisoned like he was, want to destroy the people who've engaged in apartheid, are filled with hatred and rage. And, and a symbol of that was their um, soccer team, or I think they called it football. And that they wanted to destroy this team because it was the symbol of apartheid. And he goes to the council who've already voted to to take it apart and get rid of it once they're in power. And he says, no, we are not going to do that. In fact, we're going to do the opposite. We are going to care for and love and nurture and support these people. And this is going to be the pinnacle on which our country turns. And he he uses that very situation to love, to care for, to nurture, to support. And it it just brings I mean, there are several examples in the film where you see this black and white confrontation and you just watch it through the playing of football. You watch it turn around and so powerfully uh, this man was such a such a powerful human being, a human presence of love that just he changed the world. And so uh, it's it's another powerful place to get a bird's eye view of what that looks like, as is the movie Gandhi, where, you know, there's a there's a scene where, in Gandhi, one of the um, the new laws that's been passed as a policeman could go into any Indian's home and at any time, and he doesn't have to knock. And and so one of the people in the audience, one of the men, gets up in a rage, and he says, I will kill the policeman that would do that. And Gandhi, who's on the stage leading the uh, conversation, says, for this cause I am willing to die, but there's no one I am willing to kill for it. He speaks... As an actual human being, we need to start to speak as actual human beings. Because as you say, Tim, the cultural brainwash has been so much about violence and murder as though that could ever solve anything. And it is an insane conversation. And, the reason, and, and my definition there for insane is it's loveless. The active presence of love could not in a million years do those things. The active presence of love will find creative ways to change the game. Gandhi, Mandela are two examples of those who through love change the game. Far more powerful than any act of violence could ever be. And, you know, violence begets violence, hate begets hate. That's just the way it is. And you look at more and more and more and more murder as though that could possibly solve anything. And it never will what is going to solve it is when we as individuals and collectively create communities of love create communities where healing is the natural byword is the first place that the mind goes rather than the last place and as we do that then we start to stem the tide of violence and we start to turn the game around and back to the truth of who we are as human beings and as human life shows up more and more that active presence of love, then then we'll see the real power of healing that can happen in the world. So, Michelle, does that kind of uh, get around to where you were looking and uh, any more thoughts in that regard or anybody with a hand up or anything happening in the uh, the chat room?
0: Uh, no hands up right now. Uh, chat rooms uh, quiet. And um, no, I think I think you uh, adequately answered the question. I think there's some, you know, some good tips in there. I had asked Maureen. She, Dole um, had done a breathing session um, this weekend. As I think, maybe it's his fourth or fifth week with the uh, month-long intensive that he's kind of. Uh, maybe we should call it in like intensive um like outpatient. Like it's an intensive
2: Oh, is it 30 thirty thirty day home. forgiveness challenge is what he did.
0: Yeah, oh that was a, a titled? Okay. So maybe the 50 thirty. 30 day about- forgiveness yeah.
2: challenge, yeah.
0: So they they uh breathed yesterday and I just wondered how it went.
2: Awesome. Well, I haven't heard from him yet, but uh, we did get to see the scores and just monumental. You know, they did a personal code evaluation at the beginning of the 30 days and then they completed at the end and uh, just some monumental, huge, huge changes, like 60, 70, 80-point shifts on the personal code evaluation for two or three of the people. Pretty awesome. It is. Definitely.
0: It is. Nice model. So...
2: Yay! Our calling number is six four six two hundred four one six nine. We will be, by the way, on the seventeenth of January. We're going to be in South Florida. We're going to head down there and do one week of workshops. We did add uh, some additional workshops to that week. So we're on Sunday, the seventeenth of, uh, of January. We're going to be at Unity on the Bay doing their Sunday service and uh, in the Late afternoon, we'll be starting a Why Is This Happening for again workshop. I forget the timing, but I think it's three or three thirty, something like that. Because of the events that they've got going on at uh, at Unity there, and then there is an Ayurvedic center, a natural natural healing center, that is in Hollywood, just up the street a little bit. And we're going to do a full week there. We'll do Sunday or Monday. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then we'll be doing an all-day Mind Shifters and Still Point Breathing on Saturday. So if you want to join us for that, let us know. Keep us posted. In the meantime, we're down to the last few seconds, so I'll just say that uh, we hold the space for you to have the best year yet of your eternal life. It is an awesome gift to give the world. And again... If you're ready to uh, step into uh, the next level of your work and ready for an intensive for uh, February, you know, especially if you're up there in cold country, come and join us for the month of February. It should be beautiful in uh, Orlando. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you. Blessings. Again, create the best year yet of your eternal life. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice and his wife, Jeannie who present the internal Aramaic process of forgiveness. Michael and Jeannie are here every Monday through Friday on Earth Angels Radio. For more on Michael and Jeannie, please visit www.whyagain.com. That's www.whyagain.com.